This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. The World Meteorological Organization on Tuesday announced that, quote, there is a 50-50 chance of average global temperatures reaching 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels in the next five years, and the likelihood is increasing with time. While climate scientists are sounding the alarm that the ambitious-sounding United Nations goals of reaching net-zero emissions by 2050 are simply inadequate to stave off catastrophic climate change. To that end, my guest Peter Fikowski has written a new book that focuses on four accessible and affordable means to restoring the climate that can stabilize the carbon levels enough to sustain human life on the planet. Peter Fikowski is the author with Carol Douglas of Climate Restoration, the only future that will sustain the human race. He is an MIT-educated physicist and engineer. He's worked at NASA and the Fairchild Schlumberger Artificial Intelligence Lab in Palo Alto. Welcome to the program, Peter. Thank you very much, Sonali. It's great to be here. So the United Nations Climate uh, Change Conferences, the annual COP conferences, Conference on Parties, the last one emphasized net zero. This was the theme of the uh, whole conference. First of all, explain in, to our, uh, in lay terms what net zero is and why you think relying on that alone is just not going to be enough. Yeah. So, so net zero means that it's equivalent to not emitting any any CO2 anymore. Uh, so it, uh, if we continue emitting certain uh, uh, fossil fuel emissions, then we would have to pull those out. And when the, the what goes out equals what comes in, that's net zero. And that'll stabilize climate to where it is at, at the time that we reach net zero. And so it's a sort of an emissions-based um, approach, which is if we have carbon emissions here uh, that increase, we need to reduce some on this side, the decrease, so that eventually we reach a net of zero, right? Yeah, yeah. And it made a lot of sense. I'm 66. When I was a freshman at MIT, uh, CO2 levels were below 350. They were in that range that humans might actually survive long term. And getting to net zero was a possible approach to keeping humanity alive. Societies lean towards the free market to hope that the uh, free market would figure things out. Uh, and that didn't work out well. Uh, CO2 is now about 50% uh, higher than humans have ever survived before. We've given up on the survival of humanity unintentionally. And my book and the climate restoration movement is uh, reviving the a belief and an intention that humanity should survive. So the idea of restoring the climate is a big idea. What corporations have sold us is this notion of carbon capture. Uh, and there's been a great emphasis on carbon capture technologies. There's, of course, a lot of money at stake. What is your book discuss? These four means of what you call climate restoration. Aren't these just carbon capture technologies? Um, and if so, you know, how realistic are they? Yeah, um, I don't 
they are technically carbon capture technologies, but I don't like using that term because when you talk about carbon capture technologies, it puts your mind on that arc towards a disastrous high level of CO2. The big four, as I call them, they're the methods that nature uses to get massive amounts of CO2 out of the atmosphere. Over long periods of time, nature puts carbon into limestone. 99% of all the CO2 on our planet, all, all the carbon on our planet is sequestered in limestone, mostly on the bottom of the ocean where shells over millions and billions of years collect. We can, we can do that. I'll talk about that in a moment. And then the second method is what nature does for ice ages. Uh, we've all, <laughs> I think most of us have seen the movies about ice ages and they're real. They happen about every 100,000 years uh, for the last million years. To get to an ice age, nature removes the same amount of CO2 that we're going to remove by 2050 to restore uh, the climate that we had the last 10,000 years while hum humans evolved our, developed our agriculture and uh, civilization. So uh, the first method is synthetic limestone. So let's talk about that in some detail. Synthetic limestone. I mean, limestone, what is limestone? I mean, is it it's basically rock, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's a white rock. If you've ever seen pictures of the white cliffs of Dover, that's limestone. You know, hundreds and hundreds of feet of limestone. Calcium carbonate, it's the same material that shells are made out of. And so you can make artificial rocks, or I guess, uh, I shouldn't say artificial rocks, you can artificially make rocks? <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. You, the compound is very simple. And if you imagine an oyster, uh, a lowly oyster making its beautiful shell, that's uh, in essence what the synthetic limestone does, is, is it does the same chemistry, but does it in a plant um, or in a processing plant where it takes the carbon from uh, sometimes from the air, some when it's available, it'll take the carbon from various manufacturing plants and um, to get calcium from demolished lime, demolished concrete, or from the ocean, or from various uh, ashes. So it can be an environmental cleanup and uh, produce limestone. And doesn't it take a lot of energy to do so? And this is the fear with a lot of some of these technologies is that the end product may sound nice, but if it's using up a lot of energy to do it, then are, is it worth it? Right. Well, the answer is it takes very little energy. Um, and I use the example of a oyster. So you can sort of visualize an oyster is a low energy creature. Chemically, what happens is they use a, a solution with ammonia that will capture carbon dioxide molecules out of the air. And then a little bit of chemistry will deposit that as calcium carbonate as a, as a shell or as rock. And the chemistry behind it, since you are and I are physicists, it actually is, uh, puts out energy. It, it actually produces a, a certain amount of heat when it does that process. And um, the energy required is just the energy to move, to pump, the fluids and the air and so on. A uh, plant that does it started in just about eight months ago here in the San Francisco area. And the San Francisco airport has chartered, has purchased all of their output for the next two years for the uh, construction of runways and, and uh, terminals. 
So rock, rock, this sort of rock is quite useful for, for building materials and, you know, people exactly. use them for so, beautification. In their imagine this, yards, a, a square yard or a square meter of, of this concrete sequesters a ton of CO2 hmm. in, the carb, in the calcium carbonate rock. So, th so this isn't some future technology that needs to be invented and explored. It's happening and it just needs to be scaled up. Exactly. And, and that's happening right now. It's very exciting. Just last month, they got a rule for the uh, General Services Administration, which is procurement for the U.S. government, requiring that when available, that uh, government construction always use the carbon, carbon negative rock. What's the other uh, of the four ways that you discuss in your book, Climate Restoration? It involves seaweed. Well, well so uh, photosynthesis is what most of us think about when we think about carbon dioxide removal. We talk about growing more forests and uh, other ways of photosynthesis on land. The problem I think everyone knows with forests is that they die. It takes a couple decades for a tree to get big enough to have a lot of leaves and pull a lot of CO2 from the air, and then it's alive for another few more decades, and then it dies, and then the CO2 goes, it, the tree rots or burns, and the CO2 goes back into the air. So it, it's a very short-lived way of sequestering carbon in the ocean. So you want green ocean, because that's where the photosynthesis is happening. And the algae, which is what turns the ocean green, as, as it grows, um, it dies and falls down to the middle of the ocean, a lot, most of it gets eaten by fish and the fish die and eventually fall to the middle of the ocean. And a little bit of it falls to the bottom. There's a myth that it's all about the material that falls to the bottom, but that's not, that, that's a myth. That's not what, what's important. In the ice ages, nature, as I said, removes all the, as much CO2 as we're going to remove, the trillion tons, and it goes, gets dissolved in the water as biocarbon. And it doesn't make that much difference in this sense that it increases the amount of biocarbon by about one or two percent in the ocean. It's it, the ocean holds enormous amounts of carbon. At the end of the ice age, the ocean currents change, and then the oxygen comes in and it essentially rots and turns back into CO two, and then the planet will <laughs> warm up again. Then the trick is, you know, how do you get the blue ocean to turn green? What nature does is the, uh, induces phytoplankton. We can also do kelp. And so uh, we're promoting both ocean phytoplankton as well as kelp. Um, with a phytoplankton, you add the missing nutrient, which is iron, as iron dust, uh, which is how, you know, such as from a volcano. If with, a, uh, with the kelp, you get the, the nutrients from the deep ocean. But in either way, you're providing the nutrients that are needed on the ocean surface where there's lots of sun, lots of water, and some missing nutrients. And then in both cases, in the case of kelp, they can harvest about half of it and about half of it naturally falls down into the depths. And in the case of phytoplankton, the phytoplankton becomes fish food and the uh, and then the fish are, har are are harvest some of the fish are harvested and funded by um, supporting fisheries both commercial fisheries as well as uh, indigenous fisheries so um, like the synthetic limestone which is sold for you know, roads and buildings and it's funded that way 
ocean photosynthesis is funded by producing uh, a certain amount of seaweed, which is food and fuel, and is a phenomenal source of chemicals. They make um, they make synthetic leather from the seaweed and the uh, related sargassum seaweed. So again, is this scalable? Is the technology already in motion? And does it require you know less energy than than you hope? Yes, yes. So yes to um, everything. All right. Yeah, uh, they're all the the, um, the seaweed and the phytoplankton. They're solar powered, and that is to say, the sunlight grows the plants just like on land. As I said, the difference is on land, this plants rot in the ocean. It falls to the bottom where there's not enough, or to, to the middle of the ocean where there's not enough oxygen to to uh, rot it. And so the phytoplankton method. Uh, was demonstrated 10 years ago in the Gulf of Alaska in a sort of medium-sized uh, sample. They uh, they do it in a in an eddy, a circular eddy, about 100 miles in diameter, and um, that keeps the the nutrients contained. So you get so the blue ocean turns green, and you get a lot of fish coming. And but you know it's a disturbance, it's a change. You know, one says, are there consequences of fertilizing the ocean? The answer is, yeah, it gets healthy. They discovered that uh, there was a big uh, burst of of whale births two or three years later, because that's how long it takes for uh, whales to, or nice two years later, that's how long it takes whales to give birth. Um, so you, it, that's a change. And some people, I think everyone likes a good change, but it's contained. Within the within the eddy, so it's a it's a contained change, and the rest of the ocean can stay blue. It takes only one percent of the ocean to sequester all the CO two we need by twenty fifty. Just one percent, wow. just about five hundred. And, and it sounds eddy. like it might be good for the whales too. Definitely good for the whales. Definitely and then good. For your book also talks about methane. It's not just carbon yes. capture; it's methane capture. Methane is a much more potent uh, greenhouse gas, and it is released in various ways by various technologies, including industrial agriculture and uh, escape from from uh, uh, power plants, etc explain i know this gets a little bit wonky into the science but you have you detail what you call enhanced atmospheric methane oxidation if you can give a, a layperson's brief over, overview of what it is and again whether it's affordable whether it's already in you know practice and scalable and and doesn't use an, a, a too much energy Methane, as you said, is emitted all over the planet. Uh, people are working hard to contain it, and it's nearly impossible to stop methane emission. Nature oxidizes methane naturally. So methane lasts in the atmosphere 8 or 12 years, and um, it, gets, it gets oxidized. Little, if you imagine turning on a gas flame on your burner in the kitchen, that's how it does it, except that it, it's essentially uh, sort of solar-powered. It's a long, the chemistry is complicated. Uh, what we're doing, this enhanced atmospheric methane oxidation takes the, the, the half-life of methane in the atmosphere is eight years. So if you didn't put any methane, new methane up in eight years, you'd have half, half as much methane as, the, as before. Where we do, our plan is to re double the rate of oxidation. So the half-life is four years. That will restore the methane level to what it was pre-industrial. 
Now, the last time our planet warmed up and we, the planet lost the Arctic ice was um, about 50 million years ago. And at that time, there was this big methane burst and about a third of the species went extinct. And we don't want to do that. Obviously, humanity might be one of those third of the species. So to prevent that, if we, if we can accelerate the oxidation of the methane, if that burst were to occur, then it would, we could oxidize it before we lost more than a few uh, harvest seasons. And uh, that, that's the main reason I've done it. It just has an obligation to my children and our children that let's have an insurance policy. And the benefit of it, side effect of it is we now have the technology and we're doing it, reducing methane levels so that um, when you reduce the methane by a factor of two, that will bring global warming back to what it was around the turn of the century. So 20 years ago, before the massive wildfires, before the loss of a huge amount of coral reefs. And so that would be very exciting before the regular huge, huge hurricanes that we have now. Peter, if, if these are technologies that are already readily available, just need to be scaled up, aren't terribly expensive, and you've done the math, I should point out, in your book about it. Um, you've also done the math to ensure that it would actually uh, re restore the climate, then why are these not central talking points to rally around at, say, the United Nations or even here in the United States? Uh, why is the federal government not looking at these? Um, is it that there's not enough you know, corporate profits at stake? No, it's actually the opposite. Um... The, you know, the, your audience is very critical to this, that um, the climate, the, the, the reason that's not being done is no one put on the table the survival and flourishing of humanity. Since the beginning of, of time, <laughs> since the beginning of humanity, we've always assumed that humanity would go on because we had never destroyed the planet before. Well, um, it's a new philosophical idea. Oh, we need to restore the planet so we can survive. And it had never been put on the table. And your audience, I think, will be critical to saying, you know, it's, it's not enough anymore. You know, for the last 35 years, it's not been enough to just reduce emissions. We have to restore the planet if we want to keep humanity alive. Let's redo our goals and say, we actually do want to restore the climate. Once you know what, it, what the outcome is, we want to get CO2 below 300 by the year 2050, then we calculate, oh, we need to remove a trillion tons of CO2. We need to remove oxidized methane at a certain rate. It turns out the cost of doing all of that is about $2 billion a year total. And that's mostly investment, which then starts paying for itself because you know, in fish and, and uh, limestone. You also point out in your book that it is important for us to ensure that the global population doesn't go nuts. Um, but it's already happening, and it's happening in ways that are in line with respecting human rights and women's rights, um, because we see that when women have access to education, they naturally want to have fewer children. So it's happening. So, so can you talk a little bit about that, that, that even though it's happening, it's, it's a worthy issue to pay attention to without falling into the trap of population control yes. that past leaders have fallen into? 
Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, um, it's this, the same topic. It's actually more critical than the climate. Well, more important. The climate is critical because we only have a few decades <laughs> to, to take action. And that action is beginning. On the population, uh, we frame the idea of a safe harbor for population. So just like the, for climate, the safe harbor is what we had when agriculture developed. For population, our planet was had a stable human population for 10,000 years. And so we know we can survive that long, long, long term. Um, we've only, you know, we're currently 10 times more people than that. The uh, issue is the same as the climate, is setting our goal on a sustainable population. And once we agree that we want that, then uh, we know how to do it. The, you know, family planning, sex education, <clears throat> all those things come almost naturally. And so really, as far as I know, this is the first time there's been a call for a sustainable population. The birth rate of Italy, if, uh, which is not terribly low, it's low, but it's, you know, it's a 50% higher than the birth rate, say, of South Korea. So the birth rate of Italy, would, uh, if it were the global birth, or when is the global birth rate? will take us to a sustainable population by the end of the century. Now, there's more details in the book. Sure, but... yeah. Well, uh, we have to say goodbye, uh, but people can certainly pick up a copy of your book, um, Climate Restoration. Peter, good luck to you, and thank you so much for joining us. Sonali, thank you very much. This was a great conversation. My guest is Peter Fikowski, author with Carol Douglas of Climate Restoration, the only future that will sustain the human race. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at RU with Sonali.